has shown himself in my life alone through the forgiveness of my sin and loving me unconditionally are miraculous. I've known for several months that I wanted to be baptized. However, while deciding when, I unexpectedly experienced negative thoughts and emotions. I questioned whether I was worthy and if I even wanted to. Then I began to develop uneasiness about being in front of a crowd, something that I've never really struggled with before. I realized these thoughts were not of God. I believe this speaks to the spiritual warfare that takes place within everyone. If you are experiencing something similar, do not let the thoughts such as these rule your life or deter you from the path that God is calling you toward. With Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, you are worthy of being saved and of going through the waters of baptism. I am grateful for my family, for this church, that's all of you, and for Pastor Allen, that sounds weird to say, for helping me <laughs> recognize this truth in my life. You know what I love about this is the, the fact that Jesus Christ, through his spirit, does not give us a spirit of fear, but he gives you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so we rejoice this morning that you've over, overcome that fear through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Anna, it gives me great privilege with your parents right beside you to baptize just you baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're buried with Christ in his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. It never gets old, does it? I feel like I'm going into a war room locked and loaded. It's like 007, back my, my, my people from back in the day. You know what I'm talking about? Well, let's do this. Let's, let's just been a good morning already, hasn't it? I mean, God is good. We've seen life change demonstrated in front of us. We've heard great things that are happening in our missions field, in our kids' life department. And so what do you say we do this? Let's open up God's Word. Y'all want to open up God's Word? Let's see what he has to say for us this morning. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The title of my message is something that applies to all of us, if you can hear my voice this morning. And that is the fact we're going to ask the question, who or what right now is your king? And like I said, I don't want to waste any time. I want to dive right in. And so if you remember back to the beginning of this series, I told you a little bit about what the book of 1 Samuel was all about. And so if you missed that, here it is. The book of 1 Samuel is essentially this. It's Israel's search for a king. And at this point in their history, Israel had taken possession of the promised land. And now as we come into chapter eight today, what we're going to see them do is they're going to ask God for a king. Why? Because they thought this, they thought that a king was what they needed to protect them. They thought that a king is what they needed to prosper them, to guarantee them safety and stability. And when they looked around at all the other nations around them, they saw that they have a king and they have a king and they have a king. And so what do they say? 
They said, we want a king, right? We give us a king. We need this too. However, what we're going to discover in chapter 8 today is that their request for a king is a big problem. And it was a problem because it was, as we're going to see today in verse 7, it was a complete lack of trust in God. You know why? Because it's God who was supposed to be their king. You see, God was supposed to be the one who they depended on to meet their needs. And the Israelites were like, well, yeah, we get that. That's cool. Like, it's, it's cool that God is part of our lives. That's what they thought. It's cool that he's part of our lives. It's cool that God is there as like a safety net in case emergencies happen and we need someone to fall, fall back on. But in the real world, like in the here and now, we've got real problems in front of us. They said, we got real bills to pay, real enemies who want to hurt us, and we got real social issues that we need to deal with. And frankly, we need something more than this just invisible God who we don't even know where he is half the time. Like, we can't touch him, we can't see him, we certainly can't control him, and therefore we need something or we need someone that we can depend on right now. Church, that was Israel's attitude towards God, and God is going to call that an absolute rejection of him. Now, before we get too far, this wasn't a rejection like, God, get out of here. Right? They weren't saying, God, we don't want you a part of our lives at all, but it, or a part of our lives at all. Instead, it was a rejection by saying, God, we want you in our lives, but we need something else. See, we need something more. We need other things besides you to guarantee us happiness and security. Now, before I walk us through this story this morning, let me ask you a question. Aren't we sometimes like this too? Like, just be honest with yourself. Aren't you sometimes like this too? For instance, aren't there times in our lives where we're like, God, I'm really glad that you're part of our life, you're part of my life, but in order for this to work, in order for life to really work the way I want it to work, I demand a great marriage, right? I demand a secure job. I demand to have enough money in the bank where I can feel secure. You see, God, for many of us, operates more like a safety net. He's someone that we can turn to when things go wrong, but he's not really the one that we depend on in our everyday lives. Let me give you a little word picture, a little example this morning of what I mean. Last summer, uh, my wife and I, we took a trip up with Jillian before Hadley was born, so Amber was pregnant. We took a trip up to Lake Anna uh, to see a buddy of mine and stay for a few days at his lake house. And while we were there, he told me that he really wanted me to learn how to wakeboard. And so when he first told me that, I was like, you know what? I can knock this out of the park. I'm a pretty mean snow skier. I don't know if you guys have ever seen me on the slopes, but I can light it up on the ski slopes, y'all. But here it is. I was like, this is going to be no problem. And so we get out on the lake that day, and he's like, I'm going to go first. And so he gets out on the boat. He does everything. He hooks in, goes in, goes to, and basically he's sitting out on the lake, and he says, all right, I'm ready. And the boat takes off, and what does he do? He pops right up. And this guy, he's the kind of guy that grew up on the lake. So he knew his way around the little, the little wakeboard, so to speak. So he's out there on the waves. He's doing like jumping. He's like turning. He's like spinning. I don't know what you do on a wakeboard. I, I, you're going to find out in a minute I wasn't very good at it. But the reality was he was killing it, okay? And so he gets back in the boat after doing all his wakeboard. And he's like, you got it? I was like, bro, I'm going to be doing what you would do in my lunchtime. That's going to be no problem at all. And so what does he do? He tells me one thing. He says, the most important thing you need to realize here is this. When you sit back and when you're hooked in, and when you lean back on that rope, anybody ever been wakeboarding before? You have to depend on the rope and the boat to pull you up. If you try to pull yourself up, you're going to hit the water. You're going to faceplant. 
I was like, I know, I got this, all right? You already told me that. And so what I do, I strap my boots on, I strap my board on, I'm sitting out there, I got the, the rope hanging on, and all of a sudden he says, you ready? I said, oh, yeah, I'm ready, pull it. And he pulls it, and you know what I did? I pulled it, and I smacked right in the face of the water. And I realized that it's really easy, or excuse me, really hard to breathe out of your nose when you've got a gallon of water up your nose, right? That's what I realized real quick. And so I come up out of the water, I can't even hardly breathe, and he looks at me and said, hey, you tried to pull yourself up. No kidding, right? So we do it again and again and again and over and over. I kept trying, and finally I leaned back. I remember I took the rope. I was exhausted. If you've ever done it, it was exhausted. I leaned back. I looked up. I was like, all right, Lord, let's just do this. i got to relax. And sure enough, I got into a place where I was just at peace. I leaned back. I relaxed. The next thing you know, what happened? I popped up. Right? And I started doing it for a minute, and then I hit the ground again. But anyways, that's another story. So I sort of figured it out. But here's what I want to do. I want to use that story, all right? I want to use that story as a metaphor for what we're going to talk about today. You see, the reality was both my friend and I, we had the exact same equipment. We had the boots. We had the straps. We had the board. We had the rope. We all had the same equipment. Thankfully, we had a life jacket for my sake. And both of us We were going generally the same direction. He was kind of gliding. I was like a rock skipping. But either way, we were going the same direction across the lake. But the truth was there was a huge difference in what we were actually doing. You see, my friend was fully trusting in the rope. He leaned all his weight back on that rope. However, when I first started to learn, what did I do? I refused to lean my weight back on that rope. Why? Because I didn't trust it completely the key. I didn't trust it completely. I wanted to trust in myself, not in the rope. You see, in a sense, I was treating the rope as a safety net that I was going to use if I couldn't do it on my own. Church, that image, that picture you're seeing right there is a picture of what Israel is willing to do with God. They were willing to use God as their safety net. They wanted to keep him satisfied for eternity's sake and if anything bad were to happen to them, but they didn't want to depend on him in their everyday lives. In other words, they weren't willing to lean their full weight back on God. That's the picture of what we're going to see as we dive into 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. And so let's jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. It says this. When Samuel. Who's Samuel? Who's Samuel? Samuel, if you remember way back to the very first week, was Hannah's kid. He was the one that was born miraculously to Hannah back in chapter 1. He grew up to be one of Israel's greatest prophets. In other words, he heard from God and told the people what they needed to hear. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. In other words, unfortunately, Samuel's sons, they turned out to be rebels. Right? They didn't follow God at all, but what this, in fact, is going to do is it's going to provide an opportunity for Israel to request something that they've wanted for a long, long time. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel, they gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Slap in the face, right? <laughs> I mean, holy smoke. You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the, king, but, this thing, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are also doing it to you. Church, right out of the gate, we see exactly what was wrong with Israel's request for the king, and that's this. They were rejecting God as their king. You see that in verse 7. They were rejecting God as king. My, my friends, as I said before, Israel's demand for a king represented a complete lack of trust in God. You see, God was supposed to be their king. And they were supposed to depend on him for everything. But from the very beginning, God had never been enough for them. Never. And so instead of fully trusting in God, what did they do? They required things in addition to God. They required things like golden calves, strong armies, good food and water supplies, safe land conditions. You see, for the Israelites, these kind of things were necessary in addition to God in order for them to feel secure. And my friends, as I reflected on that this week, don't we have that problem too? Like, think about it for a second. Isn't it easier for you to trust God when you have everything you need? Isn't it? It's just easier to trust God. Isn't it easier to trust God when you, you have job security or when your marriage is fulfilled? or when your family, everyone in your family is healthy, or when you have plenty of money in the bank. But what happens many a times in our lives is when even one of those things goes wrong, one of those things is lacking in our lives, don't we begin to feel this insecurity in our hearts? Don't we begin to stress out or feel unhappiness or feel the sense of dissatisfaction? You see, Israel is not content with fully trusting in God. They feel like they need another king. They feel like they need something else or someone else, as we'll see in a minute, other than God himself. And God is going to call that, you saw it in verse 7, a complete rejection of him. Now, before we move on, let's just reflect for a moment. What do you require in your life? What do you require in addition to God in order to feel happy, secure, or fulfilled in this life? In other words, what do you depend on for happiness in this world? Church, whatever it is right now that the Lord is maybe bringing into your mind, those things are your kings, you see? Those things are your kings. And those are the things that if we're not really, really careful, they will sneak up on you and they'll begin to take the place of God in your life. And so Israel, right here from the beginning, Israel is rejecting God and they're demanding a king because they looked around, and that's what everybody else had. All the other nations had a king. And so the question is, what's God going to do? In response to this demand for a king, which he is calling a rejection of himself, what is God going to do? Well, let's find out. Verse 9 says, now then, this is God speaking, now then, obey their voice. In other words, God's saying, you know what? If they want a king so bad, give them a king. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Pastor Allen, you just went on a tyrant. You went on a whole rant about how this is a terrible thing. You went on a whole rant about how this is a rejection from God. And so if this thing was so, so bad, why in the world would God ever think to give it to him? Let me tell you why. God will, write it down, God will sometimes answer your prayers to let you learn the hard way that what you were asking for was wrong. Say it again. God will sometimes answer your prayers in the affirmative to let you learn the hard way that what you were asking for was wrong. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Anybody? A couple of us. In other words, if you ever asked God for something that you wanted so badly, 
You desired it. You worked for it. You obsessed over it. Maybe even you prayed about it, but then when you got it, it wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be. In fact, in many cases, it turned out to be a curse in your life. The quick example that I always want to think of is the lottery, right? We always think of the lottery. People, they say all the time, man, if I could just win the lottery, life would be so good. And we were driving home yesterday, my wife and I, from my uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law's house, and we saw the big sign on 581. I don't know if you've seen it, $615 million dollars. Holy moly. And so people look at that and they're like, man, if I could just win that. So we started talking, like, what would you do? And I'm, th- I'm thinking about it in my mind. My wife's giving me all these things. She's like, well, I wouldn't do anything for a whole year. I'd invest it. I'd talk to a lawyer. I'd give a bunch away. She goes, what about you? And I didn't have a good answer because what I was thinking about was the different steakhouses I was going to go to. <laughs> Alexander's, we'll go to table 50, maybe stop in somewhere else. And so it's just kind of completely different. But the reality is we look at that and we're like, man, that's going to bring us happiness. But the truth comes in, people that win it, a lot of times, what do they say? They say, that was the biggest curse of my life. Why? Because it ruined every relationship that I had. Another example would be this. Some of you, you've worked really, really hard to get that dream job. Or you worked really hard for that promotion at work. But one day, the truth is, you're going to look back on your life and you're going to realize that dream job turned out to be more of a curse than a blessing. Why? Because you've always been stressed. You're always working. You're never at home with your family. Your relationships, in many cases, are becoming terrible, and you're going to end up having regret because why? God gave you exactly what you wanted. Funny how that works. Church, one of the worst judgment statements in the Bible is Romans 126. You know what that says? It says, and God turned them over to the desires of their heart. Mm. See? God's judgment on them was to answer all of their prayer requests in the affirmative. And so sometimes God will answer your prayers to let you learn the hard way that what you're asking for was wrong. But on the other hand, the other thing that we see is that some of God's greatest mercies to us come in the form of unanswered prayers. It's the flip side of what we just looked at. Anyone ever had that happen to them? You've had a mercy from God. You felt the grace of God because he didn't give you something you desire. Listen, some of you right now, you're in this room and you're mad at God. You're frustrated. Why? Because he's not answering your prayer request the way that you feel like he should. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, God's not answering your prayer requests because he's protecting you? Like, Maybe, just maybe, God's not answering your prayer requests and giving you what you desire because he doesn't want you to replace him with something else. Let me give you an example from my life that I've used before, but I'm going to show it to you in a little bit of a different light. About eight years ago, maybe nine years ago now, I was, if you don't know my background, I've been a teacher, I've been a a baseball coach in the past, I've been an assistant principal, but eight, nine years ago now, I was a uh, teacher at Cape Spring High School, and I was coaching uh, varsity baseball for the high school team at the time. Well, it came to time, and just a little background on me, I went to school not because I wanted to be a teacher, but because I wanted to be a baseball coach. Like, my goal in life was to actually come out of high school, take my high school coach's job, and eventually be the Cave Spring baseball uh, coach for many, 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 many years to come. That was my goal. And so the opportunity came. It was my second or third year teaching. I can't remember which. And I'd co- been coaching. I was obviously part of the program. I had played there. I had won awards there. I had gone to college to play baseball. And the varsity baseball coach says, you know what, Pastor Allen? No, he didn't call me Pastor Allen. You know what, Allen? <laughs> you know what, Allen? I've decided that I'm going to step away from this position. 
And so in my mind, I'm like, well, this is just a shoo-in. Like I said, I played here. I'm coaching here. I'm a homeboy. I live here. My family's here. Like, I'm young. I'm a spring chicken. I got all the energy in the world. You guys know that. And so I thought I was a shoo-in. Everybody in my sphere of influence was telling me, you're the guy for the job. There's no doubt you're going to get the job. Alan, you're the perfect fit for the job. But you know what happened? You can probably guess. I didn't get the job. Yeah, thanks for rubbing it in. I didn't get the job, right? But now, here's the deal. As I reflect on that job, here's what I want you to see. I believe that God didn't allow me to get it because why? He knew this. He knew baseball was one of my kings. See that? Baseball was the most important thing in my life. Now, back then, I would have never openly admitted that. But now as a reflect, it was absolutely true. And God in his mercy, check that, in his mercy, didn't allow me to have that job. Why? Because he didn't want me to replace him with something else. See that? He protected me. Instead, what did he want me to do? He wanted me to learn to trust him in a deeper way. He wanted me to find my fulfillment, not in a coaching career, but in him. He wanted me to find my satisfaction in him. Church, write this down. God's greatest blessing in your life is to keep you from things that you would use to replace him. You see? God wants to be number one. He knows he needs to be number one. He's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that happens in your life. Now, let me clarify something real quick before we move on. I'm not saying that it's wrong to desire things in life. Okay, there's nothing wrong with saying, God, I really want to be married. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, I really want to have kids. Or I really want that raise. I really want that promotion of work. But it's when we crave those things. And when we feel like we could not be happy or secure without them, that's when they become a problem. And so there's nothing wrong with you asking God for something as long as you're not craving it in a sense that it becomes a king in your life. Does that make sense? Now, as we get back into the text for this morning, after that lengthy rabbit trail, what we're going to see is that God is in fact going to give them a king and they're going to end up paying the consequences for that king, which is not point number two. We're going to see that Israel is going to pay the consequences. And so God says, if they want a king, give them a king. And Samuel is going to go, and in verse 9 through verse 18, he's going to do just that. He's going to give them a king. He says, now then, obey their voices. This is the Lord speaking. Only you shall solemnly warn them. And show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In other words, God looks at Samuel and says, hey, give him a king, but you also need to warn him of what it's going to cost them when they get that king. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. In other words, this is what it's going to be like when you get the king that your heart is desiring. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Verse 13, and he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. 
And in that day, you will cry out because of your king. In other words, you will cry out to the Lord Almighty, whom you have, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Whew. That's a pretty intense warning, isn't it? I mean, that's great. There is a lot in these verses, but let me say this. The main word highlighted is the word take. Did you see it? I hope you saw it because I tried to shout it every time I got to it. It caused me to come really out of breath. The text essentially is saying the king is going to take your sons and your daughters. It's saying they're going to take the best of your fields. It's going to take a tenth of everything that you have, and you are ultimately going to be the slaves of that king. Church, do you see the irony of what is happening right here? Follow this. Watch the irony of what's happening here. Israel was looking for a king to guarantee them prosperity and security, but ultimately what they got was a king who took their ability to enjoy those things. Right? They wanted a king that they could control, but instead what did they get? They got a king who ended up controlling them. And my friends, isn't that what always happens when we have other kings in our life besides God? They start out as something that we feel like we can control, and they turn around a little bit later, and they begin to control you. I love what J.D. Greer says. He says, whatever you depend on in your life, whatever it is you depend on for happiness and security, you will eventually become the slave of. Whatever church you depend on for happiness and security in this world, you will eventually become the slave of. For instance, if you have to be successful to find fulfillment, you become a slave to success. What does that look like? It means you overwork. It means you're jealous of other people who are more successful for you, right? It means that you get aggravated when you are overlooked for opportunities and promotions and you become frustrated when other people don't give you the credit and recognition that you feel like you deserve. And so what happens is this. You become so driven by success that you end up destroying your relationships, you destroy your health, and you destroy everything else that is important. Why? Because you cannot imagine not being a successful person. You become enslaved to success. Another example would be money. Money, very common in our world today. Listen, some of you in this room right now, you're literally enslaved to a bank right now. If you realize this, you're enslaved to a bank or to a credit card company. Why? Because you had to have the things that money could buy. So what did you do? You borrowed more money than you should have, right? And because you, and you did this because you couldn't imagine being happy in life without those nice things. And now there's no way in your life you can be generous, right? You can't give any money back to the Lord. Tithing in your family right now, in your mind, it is not even an option. Why? Because you're enslaved to the debt that you've occurred in your life. And listen, those are just two examples. This could be applied, these truths, this, this idea of being enslaved could be implied to any area of your life. Take marriage, right? Take alcohol or drugs or social media, politics for heaven's sake. You could take your own personal health. The bottom line is this, all of us, every one of us in this room right now, if you can hear my voice, you have a king. You have something in your life that you depend on for happiness and security. And whatever that thing is, as J.D. Greer says, you become the slave of. But I do have, I know that sounded really negative, but I have some really good news for you this morning. Right? It's really good news. And the good news is this. The person who decides to become, if you will, enslaved to God, or to follow God, or to trust God, or to lean all their weight back on God, they're not enslaved 
anything else. You know why? Like, do you know, do you really know why? Because you can look at life differently. You can look at life and you can say, I don't need a ton of money, right? I don't need to be married. I don't need personal success because I have these things in God. I have them in God. Yes, I will desire particular things. Yes, I will work for certain things. Yes, I will ask God for certain things. But ultimately, my peace and my security and my happiness is rooted in God, who is the perfect king, the one who will never fail you. It's it's going all the way back to the first week. You remember what happened in week one if you were here? Hannah was at this place where she was falling apart in her life. She was devastated. Why? Because she couldn't have kids and she felt worthless. And finally, in the middle of chapter 1, she comes to the end of herself and she calls upon the name of the Lord. She prays to God and says, God, please help me not find happiness and security in myself. Help me to find my happiness and security in you. And as soon as she does that, she just finds this overwhelming peace and satisfaction. It's a beautiful picture. Church, here it is. You're either enslaved in this life to something that brings life. You're enslaved to God. Or you're enslaved to something that brings death, something from this world. There is no third category. And so the question that you this morning have to honestly look in your own heart and ask is this, what are you depending on for happiness and security in this life? Do you fully depend on God? Or right now, are you requiring something else to bring you that satisfaction? Verse 19. But the people refuse to obey. It's crazy. They get all this negative news, and they refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like everyone else, right? And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, and when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel once again, Obey their voice and make them a king. Mm. And so chapter 8, it's going to come to a close with God warning them, that warning them what will happen if they get a king. And sure enough, they demand one anyways. In other words, point number three, they're refusing to obey. They refuse to obey Samuel. They refuse to obey the Lord. And so Israel demands this king. And in the next few chapters... God's going to give them exactly what they asked for. In chapter 9, we're going to see that God is actually going to give them a king named Saul. And Saul, if you know anything about Saul, Saul is everything they wanted, right? He's smart. He's good looking. He's strong leader. He promised them prosperity and security. And when the nation sees Saul, they're like, we want him, right? Bring him to us. Make him king. He is the man. I want him as my king. And so they take him. As their king. But then what we'll see as the book of 1 Samuel is going to unfold, what we'll see in the coming weeks is that after a really, really good start, Saul is going to do exactly what God said he would do. He's going to begin to use the people. And the nation, once again, is going to start going the wrong direction. And so that's the end of our story for today. You guys ready to sing some worship songs? (laughs) all depressed, just close up our Bibles, you go home, is that it? <laughs> not quite, right, not quite. You see, Saul here is being set up in contrast to God's true king, Jesus Christ. You see, Israel, they longed for a king, and they thought that Saul was that king, but sadly, 
Saul is going to disappoint them. But the good news of the whole Bible, when you put it and read it all together, you can't read an Old Testament story without seeing the New Testament truths that are there. They all tie together. They all point to one, Jesus Christ. And thankfully, God in his grace and God in his mercy didn't just leave them with Saul and leave them by themselves. What he does is he sends them another king. And it was a king who would never, ever fail them. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is the one that they were seeking. Jesus alone was the only one who could ever truly satisfy them. He was the one that their hearts were desiring. You see, all of Israel's hearts at that time were desiring Saul. But what they were actually looking for could only be found in Christ. And so as we begin to wrap up this morning, as we begin to close, let me ask you a question this morning. What's your heart desiring today? What's your heart desiring? Is your heart desiring someone like Saul? Something from this world to bring you satisfaction and joy and security? Or does your heart desire the only true and perfect king, Jesus? Church, we all have to choose a king. In fact, when you walked in this morning, whether you knew it or not, each of you has already chosen a king. And so the question is, who or what have you chosen to be your king? This morning, I offer you the chance to make the choice that Israel did not make. And that's the choice to trust in God as your only king. But here's the catch. There's a catch that comes with it. In order to truly follow after Jesus, you have to lean all your weight back on him. It's just like the wakeboarding example from the beginning. You've got to put your full weight and trust on that rope if you're going to make it. And for most of us, we're okay with stepping out in faith, but we're only okay with stepping out in faith if we can keep control of certain things, right? We'll follow God, but we put conditions on it. For instance, we'll say, God, as long as you do this, or as long as you do that, or as long as uh, you don't let this happen to me, as long as you don't send me on that mission trip, right, then I'll follow after you. But my friends, that's not true obedience. Instead, that's what we call conditional obedience, which is essentially disobedience. It's what God would call today a rejection of him. We're going to dive into that a lot more in two weeks when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. But for this morning, here's my challenge for you. Very simple. Go all in for God. This morning, make him your king. You can trust in him. And so I challenge you this morning, identify what I would call little kings that are in your life. Identify things that maybe you're looking to and maybe the Holy Spirit has brought those to your attention this morning that you need to repent of and begin to trust solely in Jesus Christ as your king. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Alan, how do I know? Like, how do I know that I know that I know that I can trust in God? My answer to that is simple. Look at the cross. Just look at the cross. See what Jesus has done for you. You can trust him. He lived the perfect, sinless life, leaving heaven. And he died on a cross for you so that your sin could be forgiven and so that you could come into a personal relationship with him. And so my challenge to you this morning, all of us, is to look at our lives and to say, where are our kings? to confess those kings to him and then to just simply lean back on that rope and tell him that you want to trust him fully rather than trusting in yourself or 
trusting in the things of this world. Let's all bow our heads, everybody praying. Father, Lord, we thank you for this word to us this morning. Father, I thank you for stories, even in the Old Testament, that happened thousands of years ago, but that you could just bring to life and show us truths about ourselves. And so, Father, right now, I pray for anyone right here in this room that maybe has been treating some area of their life as a king. Maybe they didn't even know it when they walked in, like myself. I didn't know baseball was a king. I had no idea. But, Lord, you've showed me that through your word. And so right now, I pray for all of those who are here right now who maybe have some other things in their life that they depend on, whether it's health, whether it's wealth, whatever it may be, something that they depend on more than you for happiness and security. And I pray that you will reveal that to them in a fresh way today so they can confess that to you. They can put that aside and trust you as their one and only king. Father, I pray for those that are missed right now in a room this size. It's hard to believe that every single person has a true saving faith in you. And so I pray right now that you would send your spirit into certain folks' hearts those that don't yet know you, would you just send your Holy Spirit to do a work on them and to show them their need for you? Lord, show them that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you. And so in the stillness of this moment, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you would like to do that today, maybe you saw the baptism of Anna and in your life this morning, you'd say, you know what? I have some of those fears. I'm a little afraid of getting in front of people. I'm afraid of what people might think. I've lived a long, I've come to this church for a long, long time. What would people think of me if I went through the waters of baptism? You know what they would think? They'd rejoice if you came forward. And so this morning, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you or has not been obedient to your command of baptism that this morning, be a breakthrough in their life and that they would come to say, you know what? I want to believe in you and I want to be obedient to that call on my life. And so if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you want to do that right now, just pray this prayer with me between you and God. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I've messed up. I know that I'm a sinner and I've broken your commands. Father, I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to trust you. And so this morning, I'm asking that you would forgive me of my sin. And I want to put my faith and trust in you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I want to follow you from this day forward. I want you to be my king. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Well, church, if you're here today and maybe a couple different responses for you, we're going to sing one more song. It goes perfect with uh, the message today. It's called King of My Heart. So if you're here today and maybe you prayed that prayer along with me, or maybe you'd say, you know, Pastor Allen, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior, or I need to be obedient through the waters of baptism, and you want to talk to myself or the Lord family this morning, love that your last name's Lord, by the way. If you want to talk to any of us this morning, we would love, love, love to extend a conversation with you talk to you about next steps in your faith, whether it's baptism or coming to a relationship with him. But for the rest of us, I pray that you'll take this next song as an opportunity to respond.
to look inside your heart and to say, are there any kings that I need to turn over to God? And I pray that you'll turn those over today. The altar is open. The altar is always open. Every Sunday, this altar is open. I think sometimes we wait for me to give a call for you to come. Every Sunday, you can come. If you have something to confess, come before the Lord. Bow on your hands, bow on your knees, and pray to him and say, Lord, I'm ready to give this to you. I want you to be my soul king. I want to discard everything that is a distraction of you. And so as we sing, if you feel led to receive prayer or to come and pour out your heart before the Lord, come and do work with Jesus. Let's all bow or let's all stand and let's continue in worship.